Hello, I'm Peter King, and welcome to the MMQB Podcast with Peter King, where I take you inside the minds of the biggest influencers in the NFL. This week, my guests are New York Giants wide receiver Victor Cruz, and I'm dipping into the college ranks. Stanford all-purpose running back Christian McCaffrey is widely expected to declare for the 2017 NFL Draft. I asked Victor Cruz what drove him to come back from a devastating knee injury in 2014. I wanted to make sure that I overcame. I wanted to make sure that I did the due diligence, that I you know, worked my tail off, because that's what got me here is that dedication, hard work, and attention to detail. And I wanted to apply that same mindset to my rehab and to my recovery. I asked Christian McCaffrey what NFL running back he watches the most. I love watching Le'Veon Bell. I, I think he has a great mix of doing everything as a running back. I think he's a very good complete back. Him and LaShawn McCoy are two of the guys that I watch a lot of film on. Now my conversation with New York Giants wide receiver, Victor Cruz. Back on the MMQB podcast with Peter King here with Victor Cruz in the land of the Giants over here at the New York Giants training facility in East Rutherford, New Jersey. And uh, I'm really happy to have Victor Cruz on. I doubt he knows this, but in 2011, when you had your breakout season, I'll never forget the grief that I took for making you one of my two all-pro receivers that year because you absolutely, totally came out of nowhere. I mean, with three or four weeks left in the season, you're having a really good year. But then the way that season ended, you know, Mm -hmm. a couple of huge games down the stretch, and then the playoff run and everything. I just, one thing I really wanted to ask you is, when you think back on that year, is it almost dreamlike in a way that you totally came out of nowhere and you had one of the best years a New York Giants receiver has ever had in the history of this franchise. Uh, It was amazing. I mean, it it was almost like an out-of-body experience. Like every (laughs) week, you know, after the game where I would have, you know, a couple touchdowns, 100-plus yards, whatever the case was, I'd be like, man, I can't believe I'm doing this. You know, I can't (laughs) believe that I'm doing this not only – you know, for the Giants, but at the highest level in the NFL where I dreamed, uh, I've only dreamed of being, of being at, playing in this league and to be doing the things that I was doing and not only that, but doing it in the playoffs and then into the Super Bowl and to have a touchdown in the Super Bowl, you know, that can never be erased. Things like that can never go away forever. As long as the Super Bowl is being played, they're going to show the highlights of every other Super Bowl that's been played and that highlight is going to be there forever. You know what I mean? So it's, a beautiful thing. You know, I'm going to get to a little bit of history, but I do want to ask you one question about the Super Bowl that mm-hmm. year. Okay, so the Patriots, again, after the Giants beat the Patriots in 07, you go in 2011 and you make it all the way to the Super Bowl. And in my opinion, the greatest pass that Eli Manning will ever throw in his career is the pass down the left sideline to Mario Manningham, where Manningham gets the crap beat out of him. And then you guys go down and score. I mean, what do you remember about that day? Oh, man, I remember just being nervous and just having, you know, butterflies in my stomach, not knowing what to expect, wanting the game to just start already because it's, you know, we had to wait till 7, 8 o'clock or whatever the game, whatever the case was. And it was just a, a moment of of honor because you, you, you're warming up and you're looking around and, 
you know, Michael Irvin is walking the sidelines. You look on the other side and, you know, Phil Simms is walking around and, and, and Troy Aikman's on the other side. And then, you know, you just got all kinds of guys that have played at this level, at the highest level. And for you to be out there, it's just, it's just unreal. Absolutely unreal. So, Victor, uh, you grew up in Patterson, New Jersey, and at the same time, I was one town away. I raised uh, my wife and I raised our kids in Montclair. So, those are two kind of different spheres, mm-hmm. okay? And I wanted to ask you because my kids had sports events in Patterson. That is a rough place, okay? So, I want to ask you when you think back on your youth, are you surprised that you made it out of there in one piece? And surprised, here you are, you're only 30 years old, but it probably sometimes feels like you lived a lot more than 30 years. Absolutely. I mean, if anybody knows Patterson, New Jersey, they know exactly how hard it is to make it out of there, to to even, you know, get an opportunity to make it out because the resources are, are minimal. You know, the people that are around you and, and the people that – are in place to teach you what to do and how to do things. They they probably only have a high school education or maybe a couple years of college, community college of some sort. So they don't really know what to tell you to give you the tools and the resources to make it out, to get to college, and not only to get to college, but to stay there and to graduate and to, you know, proceed and, and create a career for yourself. So, I mean, I've had friends that, you know, didn't make it past the age of 14, 15, either drive-bys or you know, moving or, you know, jail, incarceration. I mean, there's so many different ways that I could have gotten intertwined in all of that as a kid. But thankful me just having sheer fear in my mom and, and, and in my family and in my support system, which a lot of the, a lot of those people were coaches. And, and were, were you afraid of your mother one, and what she was going to do absolutely. if you got in trouble? I mean, anytime I've gotten in trouble, anytime, if anybody knows my story, I've had so many ups and downs in college. And the worst part wasn't the fact that I was, you know, kicked off the team or – you know, ineligible that year, it was the fact that I had to tell my mom that I was ineligible or the fact that I had to tell my mom that I had to do a semester at home or that was the heartbreaker. That was the one that I was like terrified. I'd come home and she'd be upset. You know, that was the last thing I wanted was for her to be upset with anything that I did. So just out of fear. And a lot of your friends didn't have that, right? That At all. A lot of, the, a lot of my friends didn't even have a support system that cared, a support system that told them what to do and how to do it and and led them in the right direction. And the fact that I did have someone who my mom went to community college for a couple of years, but she understood the importance of education. She understood, I mean, she drove an hour to and from to work every day just to put food on the table and, and just to figure it out for us, you know? So she understood the importance of an education, of going to college, and she instilled that in us as well. You grew up in Patterson. Why do you believe deep down, other than your mom, why didn't you become a statistic? Why didn't you fail? Because one of the things about you that's very interesting is that you're exceedingly well-spoken and bright, and I believe just from knowing your story that there had to have been other people in your life who made education a priority and who made, you know, discipline a priority. So why do you think you made it out? I think it's a couple of things. I think a little bit of luck, to be honest with you, timing. And I think my, my support system was just so strong. I mean, uh, you know, as I got older and, and my, my high school football coach, Coach Benji Wimberly, 
and my mom and my receiver coach from college, Coach Brian Christ. I mean, those people were single-handedly the people that kept me on track and that kept me motivated when there were so many ups and downs. I remember my receiver coach from college, I was, you know, sad because my dad had never seen me play football at, at the collegiate or professional level before he passed away. And, and right when I got that moment to play in college, I was like down about it, you know, and then my, I spoke to my receiver coach about it and he was like, look, I understand how this could be difficult for you, but you being out there is exactly what he wanted to see. And now, up in heaven, he can watch every single game. He can root you on, and he's not going to ever miss a game now. And, and him just saying that to me, and I just needed to hear that. I knew it already, but I just needed to hear it from someone's mouth. And that's what kept me motivated. And, and that support system, whenever I was knocked off kilter, whenever there were some setbacks, those people kept me on track. And I think that's the difference between me come, making it out of Patterson, New Jersey, and the average kid that is just trying to figure it out on a daily basis with with no resources, no support system, it's a little bit more difficult for him to do it. When you drive through Patterson now and you look at some of the places where you hung out or played as a kid, do you sometimes think, wow, there but for the grace of God, I mean, who knows what could have happened to me? 100%. I mean, I drive past... You know, places like Montgomery Park and, and where I used to play basketball almost day in and day out during the summertime. And, and you know, as I drive past these places, I'm like, man, I, you know, why was I any different than any of these other kids that are playing out here right now? What made me special? You know, why did God choose me to fulfill this role and to be, you know, the leader of my town, if you will, or, or uh, the person that understood how to get out and made it out? And for the kids to emulate me and follow me, I mean, there's murals in Patterson of me, you know what I mean? So it's like to drive past those things, it's almost surreal given the role that I took and given the path uh, that led me to where I am today. But you know why there are those? Because teachers in Patterson need to point to somebody Mm -hmm. to show kids today you can make it out. It's possible to make it out. And that's got to be a little bit inspiring. It is. And and one of the biggest things that made me understand how inspiring it is, because people tell you, you see people all the time, but when I went back to my grammar school, school number 21 in Patterson, and they didn't know I was going to be there, and I got on the PA system. And I was like, guys, I don't want anybody to get up from their seats, but my name is Victor Cruz. And by the time I finished the word Cruz, you could literally hear the entire school erupt. (laughs) Like, it was probably the coolest thing that I ever heard in my life. Like, I'm not even, you know, I'm in the front lobby. You know, the office is right there. So the entire building, you hear them erupt. Desks start moving and kids are want to get out the classroom to come, you know, come downstairs and see me. And it was just like, you know, I matter to this town. And I matter in in a huge way because... Whether they see me on TV or in magazines or on social media, wherever they see me, they they're looking for me for positivity and 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 they want to emulate what I do and and they want to copy my exact path of where it took me to get to where I am today. In some ways, it's got to be almost ridiculously sweet that there's 32 teams in the NFL and you ended up with the Giants. You know because you know the Giants are as the crow flies about eight miles from, Mm -hmm. you know, from Montgomery park, you know, from where you lived. So when you get out of UMass and you don't get drafted, 
Did you have choices, or was it only the Giants in undrafted free agency? I had choices. I had choices, and, and um, the Giants were the only one that didn't offer me a tryout, and they had a free agency contract waiting for me at the end if I made the team and all of that good stuff. A lot of the other teams were just tryout situations. Right. And so the fact that they had a contract waiting for me made me feel like they prioritized me a little bit more and that they believed in me a little bit more, and I was like – I didn't care how how many receivers they had in the depth chart. I didn't care about any of that. I just wanted to go and put my best foot forward and see where it got me. So I'll never forget the preseason game against the Jets mm-hmm. where nobody cares about the preseason, but if you're an undrafted free agent receiver, you, you care. care about the preseason. You care a lot about That's the your preseason. life. Yep. That's your life. Absolutely. So you play the New York Jets, and you have three touchdowns in a preseason game. Mm-hmm. Now – what do you remember about that night, and what happened that night, and did you feel like eyes were looking at you a little bit differently after that game? After that game, I mean, essentially my, my life changed. Essentially, I mean, you know, LeBron tweeted about it and, you know, made my whole— <laughs> That I didn't know. Yeah, what happened? Was, so he literally tweeted. I guess he happened to just be at home with a group of friends just watching the game. And um, he tweets after the or during the game, he goes, uh, "I don't know who number three, who this kid Cruz is, <laughs> but if the Giants don't keep him, he's gonna have a job after this. He's killing it on Monday Night Football, something like that." And um, you know, right after that, my mom, I saw my mom, and my mom just looked at me and was like, she didn't know what to say. She was just like <laughs> speechless. You know what I mean? So, you know, that night, obviously, as a rookie, uh, we had to drive back up to Albany. This is where our training camp was. You know, at the time. So after the game, we didn't get, you know, the veterans got to stay home and whatnot, but we had to go back up to Albany and shack up in our in our dormitories. Um, but I remember my phone going crazy. I remember just having this feeling, this sense of just like, wow, like I've like I've been chosen. Like th- this doesn't happen. You know, it, it was reassuring to me that this doesn't happen and I've been chosen to fulfill uh, a certain role or a certain path, and I just want to make sure I don't screw this up. 2011 is when you really had your breakthrough, and I wondered, as that is going on, as you said at the beginning, you know, it's almost like an out-of-body experience, but did you feel like, like, when I would watch you play, I would say you have so much confidence for a guy who's never done this before. Mm -hmm. How can you be as confident as you are against such great players when you're an undrafted free agent? I think it started with the coaching staff. I mean, Coach Coughlin, you know, brought me up to his office and explained to me that, you know, especially after that second year where my training camp was kind of, you know, it wasn't, I didn't have the best preseason that second year going into 2011. And he brought me to his office and said, look, we believe in you and we believe in the things you do. But, you know, realistically, the minute that we don't see that, you know, there's some guys on the waiver wire that we're taking a look at. And that's all I needed to hear. And that's all that motivated me. And our offense coordinator, Coach Kevin Gilbride Sr. at the time, he had the utmost belief in me. And it was just having that confidence and that belief from the coaching staff helped me be confident on the field and helped me be the player that I wanted to be and be and just let it loose and play and not be uptight. I had nothing to lose. I mean, being out there, even now, I mean, every time I step out there, I'm like, I'm not even supposed to be here. You know, I'm an undrafted guy from Patterson that went to UMass, only played two years of football there, and I'm not supposed to be here right now. So the fact that I am here 
And the fact that I'm actually doing well and I have the confidence in my coaching staff, I'm going to just let it hang out and let it play and, and see where it gets me. So let's fast forward to 2014 when you get hurt and you get hurt badly. And I've always wondered when a guy suffers a devastating injury just and in the blink of an eye, your life changes. You know, 2014, you suffer a patella tendon injury to your knee in Philadelphia. And I don't know that people realized how bad it was at the time. Laying there on the turf, did you know how bad it was that night in Philadelphia? I know exactly how bad it was. I mean, I felt, I literally felt my knee pop. And I've never felt anything like that in my entire life and anywhere on my body. So I knew it was bad. I knew, you know, I was going to miss the rest of that year. I knew exactly, you know, that it wasn't going to be easy for me to come back. But I knew I had a long road, and I was ready for it. I've always seen injuries happen throughout the league, whether it be basketball, football, whatever. But I wanted to make sure that I overcame. I wanted to make sure that I did the due diligence, that I, you know, worked my tail off, because that's what got me here is is that dedication, hard work, and attention to detail. And I wanted to apply that same mindset to my rehab and to my recovery. Um, but it was a devastating injury. And, uh, and what, that, was the story true that night that Chip Kelly contacted you? Yeah, he actually came to the hospital. He did. He came to the hospital and, and just to check on me and see if I was okay and uh, and took it from there. I know Chip Kelly from my UMass days because he was the head coach at New Hampshire. Okay. So we had a lot of battles back in the day uh, during the college years. And he actually mentioned that when he saw me. Um, he was like, man, I know a tough guy from UMass going against UNH all those years. Uh, you got a lot of fight left in you. And, uh, and it was pretty remarkable for him to come over there and to even say those words to me. It really helped me, you know, understand what I meant to this league and not just my, my own team. Finishing up with Victor Cruz of the New York Giants here on the MMQB podcast with Peter King. So, Victor, two other things. You score a touchdown in the first game of the 2016 season to beat the Dallas Cowboys. And here, obviously, the Dallas Cowboys are the incredible team of this year. You beat the Cowboys. And I wondered, <laughs> the long road back, 23 months between games. Mm -hmm. Tell me what happened when you crossed the goal line scoring that touchdown. It was just complete and utter elation. Like I can't even put into words what it felt like to score that touchdown, not only in Dallas, but to dance the salsa again. But with my mom in attendance watching, you know, with my whole team who's been supporting me day in and day out since the injury, the first injury in 2014. And I mean, just all these things culminating together and to beat our arch nemesis in their home. It was just you couldn't paint a better picture than that. And it was just, you know, if you could write the storybook ending, if, it, if the story would have ended right there, you just end it right there, man, and roll the credits, because that's that's the way I wanted it to end. My final question is about fashion. Okay. So you've got this other world that is <laughs> is really kind of interesting. And I wondered, how in the world does a guy from Patterson, New Jersey, who I would assume wasn't exactly wearing Christian Dior growing up, how in the world did you get so totally taken with the fashion scene and now you want it to be a part of your life? I think... Well, my dad was one. He was always a very fashionable guy who always understood how to wear clothing and how to put it together. So I always I always looked at him and, and wanted to be like that. And then once I had the opportunity to be here on this grand scale, 
I just always cared about the way I looked. And then I just started to use my resources and make it a thing, make it something that stands out, give give myself, my career, another layer to use as I continue to go forward. And I have a passion for it. I've always had a passion for it. I've, I've always been a fan or been conscious of the way that I looked and, and conscious of the way that, that people perceive me. Because when you see someone, the first thing you see is how they look. You don't see, they haven't spoken yet, they haven't said anything to you. You immediately look at what they look like, and then you, whether you know it or not, you form an opinion. And then once they start talking, you, you, you know, that opinion shapes itself. But I always want people to see me, the first thing they see is like, oh, he, you know, he looks good, he looks put together. And um, with that became this whole new resource of fashion and things that I want to do, traveling to Paris, Milan. Um, being a part of the fashion world and the fashion scene has just been... That's a little crazy. It's it's insane. <laughs> it's insane. Victor Cruz, really, really appreciate you being on the podcast. I hope people get some appreciation for the whole person now. Thank you. No problem, Peter. Thank you for having me. This is the MMQB Podcast. QB Podcast. This is Adrian Wojnarowski of The Vertical. For candid conversations with the biggest names around the NBA... Be sure to check out our podcast network, which includes the Vertical Podcast with Woj, the Vertical Podcast with J.J. Reddick, and the Vertical Podcast with Chris Mannix, all at thevertical.com, iTunes, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, everyone, listen up. You don't want to miss this. Make sure you remember these four letters, MMQB. With the holidays almost here, you don't have time to go to the post office, especially with all that traffic and trying to find parking. So do what I do. Use Stamps.com. With Stamps.com, you can avoid all the hassle of going to the post office during the busy holiday season. Everything you would do at the post office, you can do right from your desk with Stamps.com. Buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter or package using your own computer and printer. And unlike the post office, Stamps.com never closes. So now you can get postage whenever you need it, 24-7. Right now for my listeners, sign up for Stamps.com and use my promo code MMQB for this special offer. A four-week trial plus a $110 bonus offer, including postage and a digital scale. Don't wait. Within minutes, you'll be printing postage right from your desk. Go to Stamps.com, and before you do anything else, Click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in those four great letters, MMQB. Don't forget the microphone at the top of the screen. That's stamps.com. Then enter MMQB. Hi, boys and girls. It's Tony Kornheiser reminding you to subscribe and listen to my daily podcast where we talk about everything from sports to politics to the impending animal revolution. And remember, you can listen to new and archived episodes wherever you listen to podcasts, including iTunes, Spotify, and Google Play. Here on the campus of Stanford University in California, back on the Peter King podcast, I'm with Christian McCaffrey. Running back, sort of do everything, and even a student at Stanford University. <laughs> so, Christian, thanks a lot for joining me. And I guess I would start by asking, so a year ago, you were like the most famous football player in America. And you've had almost the same kind of year this year that you had as last year. But you don't get invited to the Heisman thing. And everybody is under the impression that 
oh, geez, you kind of had a lousy year. But your stats are all really good. So what's the difference between this year and last year? I think you, you hit it. I mean, statistically, you know, I'm, as the running back position goes, I've actually had a better year than last year. Uh, no one really kicked to me this year, which was a bummer. So a lot of those yards I got last year were because were, were of those. But, um, you and know, the all-purpose yards. Yeah, all that yeah. stuff. But, uh, you know, I, I, I can tell you that, that I, I don't really pay attention to any, any of those comments. Anyone that says I had a lousy year. You know, I, I believe I'm a better football player this year than last year, but some of the circumstances are different. And that's, you know, that's the game of football. But I've had an absolute blast this year playing for this team. Um, can't uh, thank my teammates enough for it, too, because it's been, you know, such a up-and-down ride. We, we started out strong, uh, went through some adversity there in the middle of the season, but really did a good job bouncing back. And that's what was so cool about this year is just the way we, we kept our backs against the wall. We, we stood, you know, link to link and, and, and kept fighting. And no matter what everyone said, and people were down on us and said, oh, you know, this isn't their year, all that stuff. And we kept fighting back. And now, you know, now I have an opportunity to win 10 games. So uh, it's, been, it's been fun fighting back with these guys. Stanford plays North Carolina in the Sun Bowl at the end of December. So, Christian, in your mind, how are you a better football player this year? What did you improve on this year over last year? Everything, really. Uh, my numbers as far as the weight room goes, my speed and quickness and all that stuff. And I uh, just had another year of experience under my belt where, you know, I kind of feel things out a little better and uh, predict things a little, little more and really tone up on the offense more than I was so last year. And, um, you know, there's always things to get better at. I still got a long way to go. But I do think this year I improved as, as an athlete and as a player. In terms of what else you have done, you know, off the field or adding to your sort of physical repertoire, I hear you're doing yoga now. <laughs> is that is yoga been new this year? Uh, it kind of it hit me at the end of last year a little bit, uh, you know, when, when I was pretty sore and I found that yoga – uh, a lot of guys had been doing it. I know guys like Johnson Batamosi, who played here a while ago, right. come back, and I saw him doing Pilates and yoga and doing all that stuff. And uh, Jeremy Lin was in there doing yoga one time in our weight room. I, I thought I'd give it a shot, and uh, it does help a lot. You know, I'm not I'm not a consistent yoga guy, but I'll do it every once in a while if I feel like I need it. And it's good. It's it's not as easy as people think either. What else about your physical regimen, if anything? has changed or do you feel has really helped you? I remember a few weeks ago when I was talking to Drew Brees, he talked about this, is it active release therapy, the thing, mm -hmm. the ART, where you put all these needles in your body? Oh, Have you yeah. ever tried Acupuncture? that? Yeah, I'll, I'll do that every once in a while, too. Yeah. It's been it's been great. I think that's one of the biggest things I've improved on, too, is just recovery. Uh, you know, because everybody with time can get stronger, can get faster, can get quicker, but uh, maintaining that speed and quickness and all that strength is so important, especially throughout a, a long football season. So learning how to take care of my body, learning when to, you know, say no, uh, you know, even even if you do want to put in some extra work, I think is so important. And that's something that I've improved on, that our strength staff and our trainers have done such a good job with us this year, really letting us know when we need to take care of our body and when we need to push it a little bit. Are you big into your body is a temple and everything that you eat has to be right? Yes, are, I am. Or are you at all a little <laughs> closet junk food guy? No, I, I'm a huge, my body is a temple, but I'll tell you what I do. I do every once in a while throw down a dessert, and, uh, you know, that's more just for my mind. I have to, you know, every, when you're eating chicken and 
spinach and pasta and rice for every meal. Sometimes you gotta treat yourself a little bit just for your soul. So I, I'm not, I'm not a god when it comes to that. I still got a little things to work on, but I do, I do like to take care of it. You know that Tom Brady's big vice is avocado ice cream. Have you ever tried it? <laughs> Never tried avocado. I might have to try that. Yeah. I, don't, I don't think I'm going to. Seems to be working for him. Seems to be working for him. I might have to. <laughs> yeah, he's only 39. I know. <laughs> and he's thrown 19 touchdowns yeah. and one interception this I know. year. I think I'll, uh, I might have to put that on the resume, the avocado ice cream. <laughs> with Christian McCaffrey on the MMQB podcast with Peter King here on the campus of Stanford University. So, Christian, uh, probably everybody who is listening is wondering, uh, are you going to declare for the NFL draft this year and uh, enter the draft in 2017? You know, I, I'm, I've thought a lot about it. I'm going to make an announcement coming up pretty quick here. Um, but, but I've thought a lot about it, and, and I'll let you know soon. I'll okay. let you know soon would be my answer. <laughs> I would think, and I remember talking to your dad, Ed, for those who don't know. Ed was a longtime NFL player and a wide receiver. And one of the things he said to me last year I thought was really interesting, whether you came out or not at any point before, you know, your four years of eligibility were done, he said he thinks that players should have the right to come out at any time because in football the shelf life can be so short. So as a player, how do you feel about it, and do you think – that you sort of should be like football players should be like the NBA, where after one year of college ball, you ought to be able to come out and play in the NFL. I, th- I agree. I think there is that definitely could could work. And I like like every decision in athletics and college athletics and professional athletics, you would have to go through the pros and cons, and there would be pros and cons of each of them. But I definitely do think that if a player's ready to you know leave and and you know physically and has had a good season and has put everything on tape that he should uh, be able to you know have the opportunity to leave and have the decision whether to leave or not I think it wouldn't be as drastic as people think I don't think there'd be a whole bunch of people leaving after their sophomore season uh, because that year of development is important but there are exceptions and uh, you know sometimes it could be hindered by the that third year or the fourth year or whatever um, but once again, you'd have to sit down and go through all the pros and cons, just like any decision you make in athletics nowadays. Um, but, but I do think it could work. When you think about yourself in the NFL, whenever that is, next year, the year after, whenever, what position is best for you? Any position they put me, uh, honestly. I'm, uh, I think my versatility has, has been my strong suit, and uh, I think that was the question – that people were asking when I was coming into Stanford and uh, I see how, how Stanford has used me. And that's, that's how I, w- I would love to be used in the NFL too, is just how they use me. You know, I think I can do everything. I can run the ball between the tackles. I can pass protect. I can, you know, go out in the slot or out outside and run routes uh, against corners. And I can do special teams, kick return, punt return. And, you know, that's, that's kind of what I pride myself on is doing as many things as possible and doing them uh, at a very high level. Who in the NFL right now do you think is most like you? Can I tell you who I think it is? Yeah. Sproles. Really? Yeah, except the running between the tackles part. I mean, he can make people miss, obviously, on the outside. He's a good Mm -hmm. returner. He's a good uh, receiver out of the backfield. But the other guy who kind of reminds me of you, with the exception of the return part, is David Johnson. Like, when David Johnson came out of Northern Iowa, a lot of people were thinking of him as – 
oh, he's mainly outside the tackle guy because they didn't ask him mm. to break a lot of tackles and to be really physical in yeah. northern Iowa. But I wonder, when you watch, who do you watch and you say, boy, I think I could do some of those things? I love watching Le'Veon Bell. Uh, I I think he he has a great mix of doing everything as a running back. I think he's a very good complete back. Him and LaShawn McCoy are two two of the guys that I've watched a lot of film on. Uh, You know, his patience, setting up his blocks so well and hitting the hole fast when he needs to do it, breaking tackles, making people miss. Uh, that's that's the kind of stuff that, that when I look at his game and look at my game, is kind of what I really try to emulate, especially the, the aspect of patience and not just running full speed downhill and kind of letting your blocks develop before you hit that hole. Try to get yourself in the best position to you know, maybe get one-on-one in the open field of the safety and try to make a miss and then uh, turn on the Jets from there. How much do you watch NFL backs and do you tend to watch games or will you try to just watch tape? A little bit of both. I do, I do a lot, of, especially in the offseason. I'll watch full games, and then I'll watch, um, you know, certain plays. So, like, all of uh, some kind of running back's outside zone concepts or all his power concepts. Are you able to runs. get that here? Yeah, you can get, get it here. Our video guys are so cool to mm-hmm. us. So, if you ever ask, like, hey, I was wondering if I could get a whole outside zone or inside zone, whatever you want, um, cut up of, of Le'Veon Bell. So, that's what, that's what I did Man. a lot is I – I watched a lot of him, and just watching him, he'll sit back there in the backfield with the ball in his hands for four or five seconds before everybody makes their block, and then as soon as he sees that hole, just real quickly goes. And so that's kind of the uh, the stuff that I love to emulate and love to watch film on is certain plays and certain schemes that are similar to ours, how some of these great running backs in the league do it. Have you watched David Johnson at all? Oh, yeah. yeah. Incredible running back. I love watching him, too. He's runs his butt off, man. That's 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 something, too, that, that you find. And a lot of the NFL backs that are so great like him uh, just doesn't like to be denied, And you know, as well as has all the attributes that you look for in a back. This year, if there's one aspect of your game that you think when you watch yourself, you say that's better than it was last year, what would it be? I think a big thing is – relationship between being patient, waiting for your blocks to set up, and knowing when to just put your head down and get four yards. I think sometimes last year I would take negative plays too much because I didn't see anything, whereas this year there's been times where you know I'd make a couple miss in the backfield, see that I don't really have anything, and just try to put my head down and get four because that's or, – or get back to the line of scrimmage if that's the case. But just really trying to limit the negative plays and, and get whatever I can if, if nothing's there. So that's that's something that I feel like I've done better, as well as route running, too. Um, I feel like my route running this year is, is not – I wouldn't say much more crisp, um, but that's something that I've really tried to improve on in the offseason is just kind of widening my route tree, being able to go outside and run, you know, a stutter go or run a slant or a post, something like that, where I, could, where I can do that and, uh, you know, try to get a one-on-one matchup. See, I really wonder if anybody in the NFL will allow you to do all of those things in the NFL because, look, A, they're not going to want you to get broken in half. B, probably not going to last in a 16-game season if you're returning punts, returning kicks, if you're playing 60 snaps a game on offense all over the field. So what will be the first thing to go? Do you have a gut feeling? I have no idea. I'm not a coach, uh, mm-hmm. but I just have being able to do all those things. I think will help me. And um, you know, if I play just running back and maybe do you know a little bit of special teams here and there, great. But uh, that's up for the coaches to decide, man. Not me. I just I just try to continue to be as versatile as possible. So you know, if the time comes where I do need to return some kicks or punts, or you know, I do need to run between the tackles, that I'm you know my body's in the position that it needs to be to be ready for it. 
what do you think after you train for a while would be your best 40 time? 4-3. Wow. You think you can run a 4-3? I have run one. You, the strength coach, it's on tape. <laughs> wow. That's good. Yeah. Whenever you do go to the combine, which whenever that is, you've probably watched it over the years. Is it entertaining to you? Is it boring to you? Do you enjoy sitting down, watching the combine on TV? <laughs> I think it's fun to watch. I think it's really fun to watch. It's, it's all the guys that you watch playing football, you know, going out there and showing what they can do uh, athletically. And I think, I think it's – I really enjoy watching it. I love that stuff. I love training and I love the concept of running fast and uh, being explosive. And that's kind of all those tests are – are, uh, are pretty cool, um, you know, and I, I think it doesn't have a huge, it has a little bit of correlation with football, but at the end of the day, you know, you got to play football. There's a lot of people that look like Tarzan, play like Jane, or a lot of four threes pumping gas is what, I, what my dad always told me. Like, <laughs> it doesn't, just because you run fast or do this or that doesn't mean that you, you still have to go out there, put the pads on and, and, and play football. So that's, uh, you know, at the end of the day, I think they, they do have similar correlations. I think it is important, but I think playing football is different than, you know, running track or bench pressing. On the MMQB podcast with Peter King here with Christian McCaffrey at Stanford. So, Christian, let's talk a little bit about how you grew up. You grew up, obviously, in a very athletic family with your mother and your father, and obviously you became a huge football fan, and, you know, you started to love it. At what age did you first think, I'd really love to do this for a living? When I was very, I was probably six years old, uh, we, I couldn't play tackle football yet because it's, you had to start at seven uh, was the first time in Colorado that they let you put the pads on. And my older brother, I would go to all my older brother's games. Uh, he'd play on Saturdays for the D.C. Dolphins, and I just remember crying every single day, wishing I could be out there and playing with him or, or just playing in general. And so when I was seven years old, that's really when I, I fell in love with the game, and I haven't turned back since. I knew that that was what I wanted to do. I would... I would write down on, on my, all my goals. I want to play football as long as I can. I want to play in the NFL, all this stuff. And, you know, it's, it's been a lot of fun, you know, living out my dreams and, uh, you know, just trying to continue to play as long as possible. What would you say has been, you know, the benefit of being Ed McCaffrey's son just in a football sense and sort of preparing you for this day? Well, I think my, my dad and my mom, uh, who, who went through it with him too in the NFL, have been so great because they've seen everything. You know, I mean, they've seen uh, people succeed, they've seen people fail, and they kind of, my dad really, I felt like, did it the right way, and, and he knows how to reach that point. He played 13 years in the NFL, went to a Pro Bowl. You know, all that stuff is great, but, but it's because of the work he put in. It's because of all that stuff that, all the extra stuff that he did. Uh, like taking care of your body, like knowing how to train. And, you know, especially in a time where it was a lot more uh, hard on the body back when he played than it is now. And so he gets it and he, he's been around and he knows, you know, the reality of the game of football. And so kind of knowing that from a younger age has really helped a lot. But also just uh, both my parents have supported me and my brothers so much and, and they love us so much. And that's that's been so fun because it, even if I didn't play football, if I was an artist, I know my parents would support me 100%. And that's, that's been the coolest part of playing is just having, their, having them in the stands watching, knowing that they're with you through thick and thin. I remember uh, Peyton and Eli Manning's brother Cooper had a spinal condition that made him not be able to play football anymore, I think, after his freshman year at Ole Miss. 
I remember how crushed he was and how disappointed he was. But he's having a great life now. He's in finance. He's living in New Orleans. He's a funny guy. Mm-hmm. He, he enjoys his life. But it's probably hard for you to imagine your life without football. Do you ever wonder what you would do if you walked off the campus at Stanford <laughs> and didn't play football? I, yeah, I do, and I, I can honestly say I have no idea what I would do. Every, I, I ask myself all the time, and I, it's been such a huge part of my life ever since Which, I can What remember. are you majoring in here? Communication, okay. yeah. So, but ever since I can remember, it's, you know, I really don't understand what I'd be like if I didn't have the sport. So I have yet to answer that question. <laughs> What's your favorite story about hanging around the Broncos or going over to the Broncos <laughs> facility as a young kid? It was a lot of fun. You know, there's a bunch of them. I used to run off-season conditioning with my dad over at the Broncos facilities when I was real little. Uh, that's when back when, you know, I was a kid and I had all the energy in the world um, and, and was doing the gassers with them and all that stuff. Could you keep uh, up? Oh, yeah, I was keeping up. Yeah. I was keeping up. How old were you? I forget how old I was. Yeah. But probably my favorite memory was, uh, you know, when I was really little, I was playing – I would always play Power Rangers in the in the locker room with Shannon Sharp and – and Ross, man, that was always the green Power Ranger. He was always he was always the red one. So that was that was a lot of fun, uh, you know, just having all those guys uh, who were always so cool to me and my my older brother and, and little brothers too. So that was probably the the coolest thing was looking back, knowing that you know a future Hall of Famer is playing Power Rangers with you as a kid. <laughs> that, that, that's pretty cool. How is it now to see John Elway running the Broncos and making all the right moves and having them in contention every year? It's wild. It's crazy. <laughs> I, that's you know. It's it's so it's so funny just to see like how everything's developed. Even my dad, you know, being part of the, like the media now, and I, I just remember him as a football player, and now he's you know he does the color commentating for uh, the Broncos on the radio, and so just just seeing how all these guys who I grew up watching play are now still affiliated with the game, but not actually playing. Uh, you know, you look at a guy like John Elway too, who's having so much success as you know as you can predict. Um, but but that's just it's it's fun watching those guys. Uh, get older and still stay close to the game and, and, you know, be great at what they do. With Christian McCaffrey and the MMQB podcast with Peter King, a couple more. So whenever you do go to the NFL, I wonder, there are going to be a lot of people who look at you and who say, well, you know, he's a real versatile guy, but can, if he is asked to do one thing, if he's just asked to be a running back, if he has to be a slot receiver, asked to be this – but you have always been of the opinion that your versatility is going to really help you at the next level. There really aren't that many people in the NFL who are like you in terms of that. Would part of the fun for you be to be different from everybody else and to be able to do a little bit of everything in the NFL? Definitely, yeah, and that was part of the challenge when, when I came to Stanford too. There wasn't a whole lot of people, you know, playing running back, receiver, and returning kicks and punts and doing the whole deal. Um, and you know, that's something that I take pride in. If it happens, great. If it doesn't, you know, it, it is what it is. But I, you know, I look at a guy like Tyree Kill for the Chiefs, who, you know, had a return for a touchdown, a running touchdown, and a passing touchdown just a couple of weeks ago against the Broncos. And um, you know, that's just something that uh, you know, as, it's something that I take pride in, and watching someone be able to do it. Uh, it's pretty cool too. So that's, you know, like I said, if it happens, great. I'd love to play football. I'd love to play as many positions as possible. But if somebody needs me to play running back, receiver, safety, I don't care. I'm, I just want to play ball. So that's kind of how. What about I playing thought. defense? 
<laughs> Would you do it? If they ask me to, then I'm, I'm all for it if they ask me to. You know, when I was coming here today, I was starting to think of what would be a good match for you in the NFL. I hate to say it. The Denver Broncos would be a pretty good match for you in the <laughs> NFL. How bizarre is it to think that one day, who knows, it's one out of 32. Is that a team you'd love to play for? Yeah. I mean, growing up in Denver, I'd love to play for the Broncos. That'd be, that'd be a you know, dream come true. Grew up a fan. Dad played nine years there. Uh, you know, been living in Denver my whole life. Uh, that, that would be awesome. But, you know, at the end of the day, I'm getting to the point now where it's hard to become a fan of a team just because you don't know when you're, where you're going to end up. So you just got to – I'll play any, anyone that wants me. That's, that's where I'll, I'll go. I have, I, it's, it's crazy. You kind of – your affiliation starts to keep quiet a little bit yeah. just because, you, you know, you don't know where you're going to end up. And uh, I just want to play football, whoever it's for. Finishing up with Christian McCaffrey. So the last thing I would ask you is I've always been fascinated to see how – on, say, the campus of Stanford, or I know you'll hate me for saying this, but Cal, or some place where you really have to be a good student. You can't mail it in. I wondered, give me an example of what it's like to be able to be a premier athlete and also to get your work done in school. How are you able to do that, particularly in the fall semester? Well, I think the biggest thing is planning ahead and just knowing, you know, exactly what you want to do uh, with your quarter. And so a lot of times in football season, uh, you don't see a whole lot of guys taking 20 units uh, because they know the hours they have to put in with football, not only in the mandatory time, but, you know, in the time they got to use the training room to take care of their bodies or ice tub or hot tub or, you know, do that yoga stretching. They have to cut out time. So uh, the schedule during the fall isn't as rigorous as it is in the winter or spring. And uh, part of the thing that helps us a lot is summer school too. Uh, we take summer school and a lot of people aren't on campus, uh, so we can not take as many units during the season. But I think the biggest thing is just planning ahead and not, not procrastinating. As soon as you start procrastinating or getting behind on something, it's so hard to catch up. So as long as you stay ahead of your work and, uh, you know, just start to create habits and, 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 you know, continue building on those habits, I think that's, that's the biggest thing I've learned is, uh, you know, if I have something to do Friday, get it done as quickly as possible because something could come up Wednesday that might prevent you from turning it in Friday or doing all that stuff. And communication with your teachers is huge too, uh, showing up to class and knowing, letting them know that you have, uh, you know, you might have to travel and giving them the travel dates, just planning ahead. That's, that's really the biggest What's thing. What's the toughest class you've taken at Stanford, would you say? What's a class that was the biggest challenge for you personally? That's tough. Toughest class I've taken. Probably MSNE 107, Management Science and Engineering uh, class. Uh, what do you do in MSNE? It was a, so it's a lot of it's a lot of mixture between basically economic statistics and computer science. So it's basically a mix of all those three. So you got to figure out how to do certain things and uh, how to code certain things based on these statistics and you know what's going on in the economy. It, it kind of combines all of them. Uh, so it's. It was tough, but, but very doable. What is the class you've taken here that you think has opened up your eyes to something in the world that you never would have paid any attention to, wouldn't really have cared about it, but after you took the class, you say, wow, that's really pretty cool. 
There's been a lot. That's tough. Uh, there really has been a lot. I took a class, uh, Com 124, with uh, Jeffrey Hancock, who's a new professor that came here uh, a couple years ago, or last year, actually. Um, I took his first class here. It was Com 24, and it was about um, social media and basically the effect that social media has on the world today. And that, I need you to explain it to me. So it's wild. You'd have to walk in one of these days and take the class, but just to see the effect that, that the media has on little things like the election, for example, is the thing that we focused on this quarter. Um, is it's, it's wild how much of an effect it has on us. And everyone says, you know, oh, social media changed him or her, it changed this, but really, you know, it kind of dives into how it's just an app. You know, they're, they're just apps and it's not the social media that's just, it's not a, a person. It can't really change you. It's the people that are, that are changing, but just how in good and bad and how it's affected our society in positive and negative ways. It's, it's really opened my eyes to the effect of media because I always knew it, it did have an effect. And, uh, but when you start to look at some of the numbers, it, it's pretty crazy. Well, the amazing thing is, I mean, let's take today as an example. So I live in New York and today everybody wants Todd Bowles to be fired. And it's not only in the newspapers now, it's 24-7 on Twitter, oh, yeah. Facebook, you know, get bowls out of here, mm -hmm. he can't coach, he stinks. Yeah. And it's, it becomes this, this drone that just you can't shut up, you can't shut it out. Right. And you know, then you wonder, okay, does the owner of the Jets hear? I think he hears. Does the GM of the Jets hear? Yeah, I think he hears. And, and I always wonder, I think it's got to be harder I think, and I'll use this example, like for owners in the NFL to just not pay attention to the screaming of the fans anymore mm. because it just never stops. Yeah. If you go on a four-game losing streak, it's all you're going to listen to. you yeah. got to be really strong to not be overwhelmed by that, you know? 100%, yeah. And I think athletes have to do it too so much. If you, know, if you have a good game, it's like Twitter will love you. you know, you'll yeah. get all these tweets from people you have no idea and you know, you know, you're on top of the world. As soon as you have a bad game, though, it's like you ruined their whole week. And they have to tweet all these horrible <laughs> things that you're like, what Wait until I do, you man? ruin somebody's fantasy football <laughs> team saying. in the NFL. Oh, my gosh, I know, seriously. <laughs> But you do have to just look at them and laugh. And, and honestly, I don't even have the Twitter app. I have my account, but I don't even have the app on my phone just because it's, you know, I, I'm constantly just reading stuff about me that from people I they don't even know me. <laughs> you know, they're saying stuff, but it is what it is. You just got to ignore it uh, and not really focus on it. But it is so funny how there's so much media pressure, not just with, you know, NBC or all these other, um, you know, big, uh, media companies that are that are talking about you, but just your everyday Joe who's who's tweeting at you that you suck. <laughs> you know, what I mean, you got to take a step back and realize that you know you you can't really focus on it at all. So, but it is funny. Some of the some of it's hilarious. Andrew Luck always used to have this cool attitude about being at Stanford and how you know he used to ride a bike around campus and you mm -hmm. know just an old crappy bike, and he used to say, man. I just want to delay my adulthood for as long as I can because I just <laughs> I love know, being yeah. around Stanford. Yeah. It's the greatest place. So for people who don't know Stanford, why is it so great? It's great for a lot of reasons. You know, you can look at the 75-degree weather. You actually came on a cold day, but it's normally really hot. You know, the weather's perfect. It's beautiful right in Silicon Valley, palm trees everywhere. You know, they got beautiful architecture, the church, Hoover Tower, all this really cool stuff to look at. 
but you know, I look at the guys on my team, and I think that's that's the what makes Stanford great is is those guys and uh, you know the people around here who are so motivated to change the world in, in positive ways. And you know, it's hard to beat. It's hard to beat a campus where, you know, I've I've had some football success in my career, been really blessed to do that. But I walk around campus just like anybody else. You know, I'm never asked for an autograph by a student, never even looked at like, like, I'm. Um, you know, it's, it's one of those things where you feel comfortable. Everybody's welcome. Everybody's comfortable. Everybody treats each other like they want to be treated. And that's, that's what really makes this place pretty great. And I, I have to think that you have to look at some other people on campus and maybe, hey, this guy just invented something yeah. oh, yeah. or this guy just just started this app or just he mm -hmm. founded this company or whatever yeah. but here it, uh, you know you just got to look at i mean in 15 years half the people on this <laughs> campus are going to be running the country i know i know? know yeah you never know when you're going to be sitting next to like next mark zuckerberg so it's it makes going to class fun too you're you're in these you're in this classes with so many people who are you know truly the smartest people that i've ever met and uh, looking to change the world in those ways and invent the next big time company. And uh, it also doesn't hurt to make connections with those people because I, I might need a job later in my life. And, uh, <laughs> a real work job. Work for one of them, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Can't play football forever, so. Christian McCaffrey, thanks so much for joining me on the MMQB podcast with Peter King. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. This is the MMQB podcast. podcast. My thanks this week to my guests, Victor Cruz and Christian McCaffrey. And now a couple of thoughts about the last quarter of the NFL season. So this week in Monday Morning Quarterback, I wrote in my column that the most significant game of the last quarter of the season is the first one, Thursday night, Oakland at Kansas City. And while on assignment for NBC this week, I got a chance to spend some time with Derek Carr the young quarterback of the Oakland Raiders. And I think everybody who's watched the NFL this year will probably agree with me and say that, man, the Oakland Raiders are really an exciting football team to watch. And and not just because, you know, you've got the black hole and the crazies and all the costumes and everything like that. That's what has been the identity of the Raiders in the last few years. But you know, really, 13 consecutive non-winning seasons until this year. They finally have broken the schneid this year, starting by winning 10 of the first 12 games. They're battling the New England Patriots in Kansas City and, and Denver uh, for home field advantage throughout the AFC playoffs. But just a couple of points about Derek Carr. You know, America really doesn't know him yet. And that was one of the ideas that NBC sent me on assignment to try to spend some time with Carr, which we did early Tuesday morning driving over to the Oakland Raiders training facility. And a couple of things struck me on this drive in our conversation. One is that if the NFL is looking for a new star of the future and several new faces of the NFL, I mean, really... You know, oftentimes when we do those things and when we make cover people out of new stars in the NFL, over the years, you know, the NFL likes to look New York, Chicago, L.A., big cities, big markets. But now I look and I say, look, the Oakland Raiders, I don't care where they're playing, Vegas, Oakland, whatever. I'll tell you this, Derek Carr, 
highly, highly impressive kid. And I say kid, he's only 25 years old. And one of the things we talked a lot about is the example he wants to set for his young sons as a role model. And those are things that you don't hear all that much of often. But I really think in some of the younger players, some of the younger quarterbacks particularly, Dak Prescott, Russell Wilson, Derek Carr, and there are others in the league certainly having outstanding years, you know, who are well below the age of 30. And I think that oftentimes when we think of good young star players, think of those guys who I just named. Derek Carr, 35th pick overall in 2014. Russell Wilson, 75th pick in 2012. Dak Prescott, 135th pick in 2016. And obviously what they have in common, you know, you look around elsewhere, you know, Andy Dalton is still young, a second-round pick. And, the, and, you know, there are other quarterbacks uh, who were picked down the road. But what I find really, really interesting is that you know, we've heard oftentimes in the last year or two or three, man, Brady's 39, Manning's retired, Drew Brees is 37. I mean, what are we going to do with all these uh, vacancies for star quarterbacks? Where are they all going to come from? Ladies and gentlemen, they're here. We're seeing them every week. And I think the NFL is in excellent shape long term at the quarterback position with guys who not only are really good players, as Derek Carr is, but clearly, unequivocally, you look at guys like Wilson and Prescott and Derek Carr, these are guys who parents can buy jerseys for and not worry what's going to happen or what they might read about these guys a month or two months or two years down the road. They're really good people. Thanks to my guests, Victor Cruz and Christian McCaffrey. If you enjoyed these conversations, be sure to listen and subscribe to the other great episodes in the MMQB series, such as my conversations with Drew Brees, Ben Roethlisberger, and John Elway. You can find these on the MMQB.com or iTunes or anywhere you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a review while you're there. Listen to other podcasts in our series as well, with Albert Breer, Gary Gramling, and Andy Benoit of the MMQB. Thanks to the folks at Digital Media for their production work, and thanks, of course, to my sponsor this week, Stamps.com. Please support Stamps.com the way they support this podcast. And I'll see you next week. This has been a Digital Media production. Find your voice.